Andrea Kindred was one of the first two black people ever to be hired by a major television studio. That studio was Desilu. Now she's written a book called From Slavery to Star Trek, and she joined me to talk about it. I'm T. Rick Jones, and this is your Daily Star Trek News. So listen, Andy, you wrote a book, and then you published it as two books. And I just think that's amazing marketing. <laughs> well, I haven't quite published it yet. It's on its way, but it okay. will. Yes, yeah. Because I did the Star Trek because I got invited to Las Vegas. Yeah. And I didn't want to go empty-handed, but sure. as someone struggling to write a book alone, um, it wasn't where I wanted it yet. Yes, I'm a bit of a. I like things to be the way I want them to be. And it wasn't. So what I did was I took part of part one, part of part three, and part two, most of part two, and made a book to take to Vegas so I could say, hey guys, here's here's what I've been doing. That's great, yeah. But the thing is, okay, one of my friends did this. That's amazing. And as you can see, that's a bit, it's a bit, it's a textbook size book. I like it though. Yeah, that's, so that's coming. It's, what's the, yeah. so the, what's the, what's the subtitle? Code switching? Code switching. You know about code switching. Yeah, yeah, sure. But what's the subtitle okay. underneath? Oh, it's, it, you know, Family's Journey from Slavery to Star Trek. That changes every week. I okay. never <laughs> when it when it's in the book, we'll know what it came out to be. Gotcha, gotcha. Do you have and a publication to, date yet for that? I I'd say next month there's oh, okay. going to be that book. Awesome, great. Yeah. So uh, your the your sort of mini book that that you took out of that is called From Slavery to Star Trek, and you're yeah. you you have um slave ancestors and you actually start the book with a really interesting story about your great-grandmother um do you want to tell that story my grandmother's grandmother yes right my, yeah 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 i, I, and I think I, it's really I, interesting about the the slave and i'm blanking on his name right now but the slave who chose to go back into slavery can you can you tell just briefly jim tell that shankle story? yes his name is jim shankle and um, Winnie, my grandmother's grandmother, uh, had three children when she met Jim. Because uh, in those days, the slave owners used to manufacture more workers by impregnating their sure. slaves. Yeah. So she had, she had three, three new contributions to that market. And she <laughs> met Jim. They fell in love. And the, the slaves were not encouraged to marry. They could not marry. They could... Yeah. They're sleeping with each other, but they couldn't marry. But they did a thing called jumping the broom, which was a, an, um, a tradition. Well, not a, it's a tradition now. Let me slow down. It was a ritual to say to the community, we make this commitment to each other. And gotcha. they did. And soon after that, Winnie was sold to, well, she was given actually, her and her three children, to a woman in Texas who had married a um, Methodist minister there. 
and he didn't believe in slavery, but she came from a slave background and couldn't live without her slaves. So they sent her some slaves. Uh -huh. And so that was, we need her three kids. So Jim, uh-uh, there was no way he was living without that woman. So <laughs> he ran away. He yeah. avoided all the slave catchers. He got to the Mississippi River and he thought, oh, well, I can't take a ferry across. So he swam it wow. and he found her. And when she came out to get water at the well, not the well, the stream, it's a little bubbling uh, thing. I, I drank there one day and uh, there he was, and there she was. And he went back into slavery to be with her. That's amazing. That's a, such such a romantic story. That would make a great musical. <laughs> well, yeah. actually, I I think the book makes a great the the big book makes a great yeah. miniseries. Yeah, because there are so many. The, another incredible woman in my life was my aunt Jessie May. Okay, now, you've never heard of you've never heard of Jessie May Robinson. I know that nobody has, <laughs> but she wrote Elvis's "Let's Have a Party." Paul McCartney recorded it, and and. Um, which majiggers say, which never mind, I lose names. Uh, it's still being recorded today, her songs. Nina Simone uh, recorded The Other Woman and had the nerve to put her name on it and say that she had written it, but it was my aunt, Jessie Mae. Oh, and so wow. she was, she, she was on the, we used to run home to watch the, the hit parade, Lucky Strike hit parade or uh -huh, whatever that was. Sure, yeah. And her songs were on that. Patty Page had a big hit with I Went to Your Wedding. And it was on week after week. Um, so nobody knows about her. So like like the slaves, I would want them to be, oh, people to be aware of those incredible people who just got left out of history. So uh, you knew Malcolm X and you uh, you were a volunteer for Martin Luther King. So can you tell tell me a little bit about them and you know how you got involved with them? Yeah, I, I, I was... I was very lucky. Gwen Green, who was the most incredible woman in the civil rights movement. Sure. Gwen was an organizer so incredible that she helped organize the March on Washington. She helped organize the Southern Voter Rights Strategy. She was there backing up all of those, the big guys in those days. And so she asked me if I would volunteer some time to help with Western Christian Leadership conference, which was sort of a fundraising arm of SCLC, Martin's group. And so I did. And that gave me a chance to, to follow him and, and to be with him for just, it was only for like a week, but I was there all day and half the evening. So, and, and in all the casual time, the, the watching him on stage talking, but then the kickback shoes off drink in hand time was that was the part I liked yeah. the best he taught me things that I never stopped learning about uh peace love civil rights he didn't spank his kids and so gosh I tried hard not to spank mine after that yeah <laughs> didn't know mostly work, huh? well mostly succeeded and with the generation that's out now they've now been spanked because yeah. they're it, it, it whatever you do we have to think about how things trickle down uh if i stopped spanking my kids then they didn't see it as the thing that you're supposed to do because when i grew up it was spare the rod and spoil the child yeah. grab that switch and beat their butt and sometimes make them go out and get the thing that's going to be the instrument of their torture that you're going to beat them up with yeah. but martin stopped that he stopped me doing that he explained to me how that terrorizing was used to keep black people 
in line and how we did it out of fear of our children not behaving in a way that would, would behaving in a way that would jeopardize their life. Sure. And and we saw those things. We saw Emmett Till, he whistled at a woman and he got murdered. So we needed to know how to, to grow up in a way that we wouldn't do things like that. So they beat us to make us understand it. I, I think if you go back into our, our culture to Africa, you don't find those kind of treatments. Yes. Anyhow. Uh, so that was how I, I got to work with Martin and yeah. that some of the effect he had on me. And also when I started working with Gene Kuhn, there were so many comparisons between the two of them that it was, it was fun. Oh, that's now, cool. Yeah. Um, Malcolm was just hanging out and having fun. We we got him on campus at LA City College because Marlana Karinga was the new student body president. Okay. Our first black student body president. And when we met Malcolm, he was interested because he'd been on he hadn't never been on campus. He spoke in a student group, but he'd never been on campus. He hadn't been officially accepted. So we got him officially accepted. And after that, we hung out and we stayed friends until he died. Wow. Wow. That's that's so and I'm still friends with Karinga. Oh yeah, oh good. Yeah. <laughs> Who then went ahead and created Kwanzaa. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, that's great. Um, so you um so you were you were friends with Malcolm. He he was assassinated in 1965, I believe. And it wasn't long after um, that. Um, when uh, Watts happened, um, and um, and you actually in your book credit Watts for getting you involved in Star Trek, um, and for just for some context for anybody who doesn't know, Watts was a segregated uh, suburb of Los Angeles, right? And um, and it wasn't segregated. Oh, it wasn't. We lived there. It was mixed. It was it was Mexican uh, immigrant. Uh, the Watts Towers. Yeah. That was a, a Italian immigrant who lived in Watts who oh, built okay. those towers. Okay. So, um, Mexican, a next door neighbor, the Bonitas. Uh, that's why we had oxtail tacos and. <laughs> oh, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> Enchiladas. And my mother yeah. spoke Spanish. Um, we now you're making we were, me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> it was sort of a, a working class community. Nobody was rich. Everybody did the best they could. Right. But it was segregated in terms of we couldn't move next door to um, the next door suburb because sure. that had covenants on it that only white people could buy them. So we were segregated because of the, the those things. And Proposition 14 had come, had just been passed. Before that, we had, they had moved laws to stop that kind of segregation, but Prop 14 brought them back and we were angry. Yeah. And when Watts exploded, it was basically because of the police chief who had his police act as though they were occupying army in our community. Um, he stopped interracial police uh, patrols and segregated them only black with black white was white he, 
he started started all that. Well, that's my belief that he started all that. So Watts was hot. We had no supermarket. I think Watts didn't have a supermarket till about probably ten or twenty years ago. Oh wow! Uh, we had little markets where you had to pay high prices with low quality goods. Anyhow, we were pissed off. Yeah, yeah, and it, so, that that touched off a riot that lasted six days, killed thirty four people. Um, you in in the book, you actually go into it a little bit, and so I I uh, sent you a portion of the book. I'd love you to read um, that that talks a little bit about about how you got involved and when you heard about it and yeah okay i this will be my first time reading i'm excited I, yeah because i just talk i've been <laughs> tripping on owsley acid and golden gate park at a love-in when i heard watson explode damn the revolution has started without me i had to get there quick I had a desire to participate in bringing about some real change. And if that meant burning down the old, I was okay with that. So when I got to Watts, 103rd Street was still where everything was happening. And I poked my nails in everywhere. And one place is warmer and the smoke is thicker. You know, so it's time to get really cool and quickly exit the store I'm in. But there's a woman and she was moving in the same direction and she smiled at me. And it was a smile of some satisfaction. You know, that smile that lights you up. And her arms were overflowing with clothing. And she was holding on so tight that a couple of things dropped down. And I said, go ahead. I'll, I'll get them. So I let her go by. And I, I picked up the stuff off the ground and these little dresses and pants. And outside, when I put them back in her arms, she looked at me and she's beaming. And she, she, she got smiles for days. She says, I got all new clothes for my kids. They're going to start school this year with new clothes. And that's the, the dream. The Nat Diamond's Empire Furniture Store that was there, my dad worked there. My dad was a super salesman, and he sold this overpriced, overstuffed, long credit term, high interest rate, cheaply made furniture. Well, there was smoke coming out of there, as well as heavily loaded people people who were sort of like ant like stopping and sharing with each other every few feet everywhere. They were working together. They were helping. What was happening? All these people all in the street of Watts? I see strange things everywhere I look. Cooperation. That's what it is. People are helping each other to carry sofas and fridges. And it's the same when I go into the next building. It's too is burning. It's a variety store and it's got stuff, cheap junk really. And I just start grabbing. I mean, there's nothing I want or need. It's just the carnival mood has captured me and I feel unrestricted. Well, the National Guard arrived, the bullets start flying and I couldn't find anything big enough to hide behind. When I left, the police stopped us in the curfew area. We felt free and united, and now we're suspect and about to be judged. I stopped at a police roadblock and searched. Oh, shucks. The woman with the clothing. To help her, I'd stuff whatever I'd been holding into my pocket, and it still has a price tag on it. The police took it. <laughs> so uh, that was riveting. Thank you for that. Um, I, 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 I like to talk better than I like to write. <laughs> <laughs> but 
But you have such great stories to talk about or to write about. It, it, it was great. I want to talk about it. I, I love, that was how this came about, the whole, the, the, my solo show. I, I, told, I think I told you I did a, a solo show called From Slavery to Star Trek, which yeah. was all this myth. And I did it at the, I started off at the, the Adelaide Fringe Festival, which is the second largest Fringe Festival in the world. And then I, I was headhunted or well, whatever happened, but somebody convinced me to go to Edinburgh with it. And I really didn't want to go because I knew everybody I knew that had come back from Edinburgh was broke when they came back and deeply in debt. <laughs> Tell me about it. I went to Edinburgh. <laughs> okay. So you know. So but this guy ran a, uh, was part of a company called C Venues, and they had about six venues around Edinburgh, and they were very esteemed. And he he made me certain promises. And it was okay because I, I wasn't in debt when I came back. In fact, they even sent me a check. I had actually had money. Wow. I know. That was really good. So that was that that was the show I did. And the and the book comes from that beginning. Sure. Because I like just sitting on stage with a glass of water and telling stories. Yeah. And you've got some great stories. So um so that your involvement in Watts, though you say, got you involved at Desilu. So how did that how did that happen? Well, the day after everything was over, when not the day when when everything quieted down, the police went back in uh, with the garbage collectors, and every place they stopped with an old refrigerator out to be removed or old sofa or whatever, and the police went inside to see what had replaced it and asked for a bill of sale. So those people got totally screwed. But the Urban League, which was an organization that uh, was helping to integrate workplaces in those days, uh, got a call from Desi Lou Studios that they would like uh, to see a couple of people. And because I'd worked in radio, the Urban League thought, that's close enough. So they sent me. And I got the job. Yeah. And... I became Desilu floater secretary, which meant I floated over the three lots and I could work in any one of them in any department that needed clerical support. And so I would work on Star Trek, Mission Impossible and other things. And Gene Kuhn came on board and I worked as his floater for a few times. And yeah. after a while he said, Andy, I love your legs. I love your short skirts. Come and work for me. Come on. I was a young, hip, super cool black chick with mini skirts. Did I want to work for a middle-aged white dude called Coon? <laughs> That's not a name that was respected in my community. <laughs> no. No. And and uh, just for anybody who's watching who doesn't know, Coon, Coon was used as a, as a derogatory term uh, for African-American um yeah and and yeah. so to for somebody who had come from a slavery background to then suddenly be working for a man named coon it's there one might see a little irony in there <laughs> um well i was just worried that uh you know it it would happen that somebody was going to call me coon's coon and and i think you you wanted me to mention nichelle well that did happen and nichelle was the one who who put me back together after it happened because right. they, I, and, I did break me up a bit. Yeah. And we'll talk about Nichelle in a bit. I want to talk about Gene Kuhn first. Um, 
I saw an interview with you, I think, where you said that actually writing about Gene Kuhn was the impetus for writing the book. Is that true? Did I understand that correctly? I There was only one book written about Gene Kuhn, and it was written by a guy who's a lovely person who wasn't even born when Gene died. And Gene hadn't given, I think he maybe gave one interview or so, but he, he hadn't been, nobody really was as close to him as I was. And I just felt it was my responsibility to talk about him. In fact, I started the book because of that. And I kept creeping, creeping into it, my life, my family, my history. And finally, my partner just said, come on, you were there. It was hard about you. Just write it. <laughs> so I, that's how I appeared in it. But it was basically to talk about Gene. He was a very special person to me. Yeah. And which is funny because um, his dad had been a Klansman. And, and my family had been slaves. So maybe we weren't supposed to. But we had the same kind of ethics sure. and values. So, yeah, he was my people. Do you think, uh, of course, I never knew Gene Kuhn. Um, uh, for those who don't know the name, I, most people watching probably will, but Gene Kuhn was was a producer on Star Trek, and he came in and he did a lot of writing. He was known as the fastest typewriter in the West um, because he just, he just wrote, you know, he rewrote a lot of the scripts, and he was just very quick. Um, do you think that, he learned from his father's negative Klansman behavior. Does that make sense? Um, you know, he was trying to not be his dad. Well, I think both genes were that. Yeah. Gene Roddenberry's dad was a racist. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's been documented in other people's books. But these were two men who were who were going their own way, despite what had happened before. And as far as they could or understood they could in the times we were living in. There were traditions, you know, uh, in the time we were living in, television people, Ossie and Harriet didn't share a bed. They had twin beds. Right. Uh, women were supposed to stay in the house, stay at home and raise the kids uh, and looked at as, you know, sex objects and all that stuff. Yeah. They were products of their time, but they were products of their time that had values that are eternal, do the right thing, to look after, care for, be honest, trustworthy, um, you know. And that was that was who they were. Yeah, sure. I, I don't think so much rebellion again. Yeah, they were rebelling. Okay. Yeah, I tried to walk. Right <laughs> yeah, they were rebelling. Okay. <laughs> um. So, uh, and you and Gene Kuhn became very close. You actually followed him when he left Star Trek as well. Um, yeah. Uh, and he took you to uh to catch a thief. Yeah, it, it takes a thief. It takes a thief. That's it. Yeah. He. Uh, when he was when he decided to leave, he, he asked me if I would consider coming with him. Yeah. yeah. Of course I would. <laughs> um, we were a good we were a good team. Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, I, I didn't go immediately. I stayed and worked with John Meredith Lucas. And then when Freddie Freiberg came in, I said, okay, guys, I'm, I'm going to be gone soon. So, you know, get somebody that's going to stay with you for the whole thing. I won't yeah. be here. Yeah. So I um, and you were one of two um, African-American people who were the first two hired by a major television studio. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, they had to hire two. It's like a good zoo. You hire a pair. <laughs> they company for each other. <laughs> um, hey, it's progress either way. Yeah, we used, to, we used to nod at each other and wave when we saw each other. That was about as far as it went because we were not, you know, we were not the same kind of people. He was an accountant, sure, university educated, and I was straight out of the hood. <laughs> and when you first, uh, when you first were hired, you did, as you said, you did a number of different things. Uh, we sort of got off on the Gene Kuhn track, but you, you also did. Um, you worked in casting and you worked in accounting and you worked, you had all these different jobs. You found yeah. accounting boring, I think. Payroll was boring, except I had people like Greg Morris calling up, wondering when they were going to get their check. <laughs> you know, all the actors, hey, hey, when are they going to, when, when are the chicks going to get sent out? <laughs> <laughs> and that's how Greg and I started chatting, and I ended up moving. Uh, he found me in a place to live uh, just around the corner from him. But you enjoyed casting, right? You enjoyed working in casting? Oh, yeah. Jody Augusta's still around. Um, there are all those actors coming in, and, and you know, it, it was like read what's happening and then see who comes in to be those characters. Yeah, that was the fun part about it. And like working in the art department, see those sketches and then see them on screen. I love being able to follow the path yeah. of the of the creative. Oh yeah. God, yes, that was such good fun. Uh, let's talk about Nichelle Nichols now. Now she passed away a couple of weeks ago. Um, it'd been a long time coming. I um I wrote a couple yeah. of pieces about her, um after she passed, um. So, but you, she was, she, you describe her sort of as an aunt um, to you. She, she was, she reminded you of your aunt and it sounds like. Oh, she, like she, she was more, okay. That part, I'll, I'll say this. Can I read this bit? Yeah, read, read it. Okay. More than anything else that Nichelle showed me, she demonstrated the dignity and awareness that the woman and the women in my family were said to possess that I didn't feel. My mother and I still were not close, and Michelle provided the hip, cool, big sister, social aunt, nurturing granny presence without being any of those. In many ways, she led her presence, her carriage, her integrity, the way she looked. In fact, I started wearing makeup, and she accomplished what my mother had failed to do. She got me to wash my face <laughs> and to make sure that no matter how I felt, at least I looked good. So, yeah. So yeah. she was, she, and, and she lived close by so I could drop by. That's, you know, that's her house wasn't yeah. that far from mine. So I could run over there and hang out. And yeah. she let me do that. That's, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. So were you two immediately, did you, were you drawn to each other as soon as you met or, or. I think we sort of like with, hi. 
Hi, a couple of times, and you know, sort of checked each other out. <laughs> yeah, well, she looked, yeah, she's she's got it together, and like, yeah. and then we started to chat, and pretty soon we were talking more, and we found out that she had starred in Oscar Brown Jr.'s one of Oscar John, Brown John Jr.'s musicals. And I fall in madly in love with Oscar Brown Jr. And he was the one who introduced me to Gandhi and about love. The, um, I, I'm not getting the, the, the word that meant Sagra, whatever. And so we had him in common. Um, and then also that helped me when I met Martin because I understood a bit of Gandhi by then. Okay. And then uh, she was with Duke Ellington. So she knew yeah. Duke's and Mercer Ellington. And I had worked with Mercer at WLIB, the Voice of Liberty Radio Harlem uh, <laughs> in New York. So I knew him. So we had people in common. And we discovered that our ex-husbands had married the same woman. <laughs> <laughs> so Michelle said we were ex-wives in law. <laughs> well, there's a basis for a solid relationship. <laughs> yep. So we were, you know, that was many connecting points. That's amazing. Um, she she invited you and everybody else over for chitlins, right? You you used to go over and, and you used to guard it. You said in your book because her mom had a pot that was at least this big, a cast iron pot. It would cover two burners easy. And it would be full of chitlins. And that's not something you get very often. <laughs> so I'd be like, you don't like these. This isn't your culture. You don't want to take the big smell back. Go eat them. They're good for you. No, no, no. <laughs> Try to keep everybody. And people would be, oh, I've never had these before. <laughs> oh, these are nice. No, no, they're not nice. You don't like them? Stop eating. Stop eating. <laughs> oh, can I eat some more, please? Let me have a little room. I put some more in. <laughs> you're just gatekeeping you're just you're just making sure the people that are worthy of eating the chitlins eat the chitlins <laughs> and if the people don't know chitlin are pig guts <laughs> i have never had chitlins um, but I do like a good haggis, and that seems akin to oh, chitlins. it is. It so is. I would yes. probably yes. enjoy them. Yes, yes. Yeah. Did you maintain a relationship with Nichelle after you left Star Trek? Um, going forward, were you in touch with her at all? A, a, a bit, not as much. Um, by now, she she'd raised me. Yeah, <laughs> I knew my way around Hollywood, um, and. She started a relationship with the man she married, Duke, and I did not like him. Yeah. Uh, I, I just never got Michelle's taste in men. I thought she <laughs> had the worst taste of anybody I knew. Oh, wow. But I, I didn't like Duke, so I didn't go around very much. But yeah. when I when I moved out of the house I was living in, in Nichols Canyon, I, I went back and talked her into coming up and having a look at it and, and moving in, and she did. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, um, and so, so you found to live in Nichols Canyon. Come on. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. 
<laughs> no brainer. Who is Ivan, who you're about to mention in this? And um, just just give me sort of the uh, brief background before you read this uh, next piece. Well, Ivan Dixon worked on Hogan's Heroes for all those years. And he was a very serious actor who I'd fallen madly in love with when he was on screen in a film called, a movie called Nothing But a Man. And there I was, he's on the lot, my idol. And, and, and one day he spoke to me and it was like, wow. So, and I had to tell him immediately because uh, I was not wearing, I, I had been wearing my hair natural, but in those days there weren't a lot of us doing it. Yeah. Um, and so my when I went for the job interview, my mother made sure I wore a wig. And for my early days at Star Trek, I wore a wig or else I wore my hair straightened, um, but not natural. Yeah. And so when he find, when he's when he sort of motioned, you know, hey, I went over to talk to him and I said, under this wig, I've got a natural. And he said, take off the wig. So that became the the, the over and over again whenever he said, take off the wig. You gotta take off the wig. And my mom would not be happy. And I wasn't certain that I could do that yet to really reveal that. Because, you know, there's still controversy. Today, there's still controversy about Black people's hair at yeah. work and at school. So I, I didn't want to take any chances then. So I, I just kept straightening it. And my mom's a hairdresser, so there was no problem. My mother preferred it because she told me I was embarrassing her wearing, wearing my hair all nappy. So um, he kept doing it. And, and one day he just lost it with me and said, oh, you know, you're nothing but coons, coon. And he sneered at me and it, 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 it felt so solely destroying that I went to Nichelle and I told her what happened and she put me back together again. Yeah. And that's what this uh, reading is, right? And so... What I what happened was uh, this happened after that after that this is what happened. Yeah. Um, I'd always tried to be casual when the show was around the office, but I also had to show off to her that I knew and was doing my job. I showed off one day when she was there, and I playfully answered the phone with my very best. Keep it low, keep it slow, and milk your vowels. Broadcasting voice, coons coon. She was there when Ivan had hurt me. Hurt me. And she had consoled me. And this is my way of saying to her that I was okay, that I had it together. Those words couldn't ever hurt me again. That's that's amazing. So you took, because you had been afraid that people were going to start referring to you as Coons Coon when you started working for- I was waiting to see who was going to be the so-and-so idiot that did. Uh -huh. Because I was... thought, no, it won't be anybody white because they won't be able to really- pull it off they might try sort of a little satirical way of saying but they won't it, it, it'll probably be somebody black going <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't it was directed focus and attack on me in the way that it came out of his mouth it was vicious the yeah. way it came out and i was destroyed temporarily yeah, well, it was probably the the most hurtful way it could have happened. Um, you know, yeah. reading it in your book, it just you felt the power of that, and you know, somebody who you so cared for and admired was yeah. the person that used that, and it, you know, I can understand how that would that would hurt. 
Um, Thank you. But uh, but you then took it and you owned it. And um, oh yeah, you know that's that's amazing. <laughs> I I used it whenever I felt like it. But I would. But then Bob Justman and Michelle writes about it in her book. Yeah, that exact incident. She writes about that. But she said, talked about my low, sultry voice. Bob Justman writes about it, and he calls it a corn pone accent. Now, I, I, I was born in the South, uh, so I could have an accent. But it was San Diego, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't corn pone. <laughs> and she also mentioned my legs. <laughs> oh, Tina Turner would have been jealous. <laughs> but Bob Justman said that basically that I was sleeping with Wilt Chamberlain, uh, a basketball player who was rumored to have slept with about 40,000 women or some, yeah. like, some ridiculous amount. And so he was calling me a slut, which I might have been, but not Wilt Chamberlain. Uh, <laughs> Bill Russell was a good friend. And okay. I think Bob just got them mixed up after all. They're both black and basketball players. That's right. <laughs> um, so we've already talked a little bit about hair. I wanted to talk about hair, but first I want you to read that last that last piece. Oh! <laughs> okay, my kids. All right. My remember, my kids had to come to the studio every day because uh, they were at private school because sure. I, I also couldn't keep track of them. Um, and so they'd come to the studio afterwards and wait for me to get off work and then I, we'd go home together. And, and okay, so this is fun. The kids had liked hanging out at the studio. They'd wandered freely and knew how to behave. But there was one time that I was totally freaked. Paula, my seven-year-old daughter then, came into my office in tears. She was sobbing so hard, I just dropped everything. I didn't know what had happened. I had to find out what was wrong. My heart was racing. It was fear was stirring up, saying inherited trauma. And I was desperately trying to get information so I could do something. My anxiety transmitted to her and she cried harder. Finally, she managed to get out. Bill, Bill, mommy. Oh my God, what has he done to my child? She could feel my growing anger and forced out. I, I, I went into Bill's dressing room. Oh, shit, he will die. I didn't need to breathe. And what happened? What happened? I was ice, my mother's daughter, deliberate, precise, and cold. <laughs> what? I'm my great aunt now, shotgun loaded. <laughs> there. I took a moment. It was okay. I understood. I was breathing again. Paula had gone into Bill Shatner's dressing room without knocking and seen him without his hairpiece. Traumatized the kid. <laughs> and Bill, I mean, imagine what would have happened if someone had seen a seven-year-old burst out of his dressing room in tears. Oh, that light time. <laughs> so that, that made me laugh. <laughs> when I got to the end of that, I, I thought that was really funny. But hair is hair seems important to you, and it was important to your mother. She was a hairdresser. Uh, you did a TEDx talk about hair. No, 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 no. Ted, thank you. There was no X 
there? Well, um, what happened was Ted was doing a worldwide uh, talent search and they were choosing people in countries all over the world. And we just had little short bits and they chose 20 finalists in Australia. And I was one of the 20 finalists to go to the big Ted. That's... And I didn't get to go to the big Ted, but uh, so I had a few moments, which was really good fun. Cause as a stage manager, you would recognize the much fun I had when my mic kept slipping and I was wearing a long dress and the sound guy had to come out, go up under my dress while I'm standing on stage <laughs> to fix my mic. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was, but anyhow, it came out okay. And yes, yeah. we had had, we had had a war since when I was four and my mom loved um, Shirley Temple, the a child actor called Shirley yeah. Temple. Uh -huh. And she had these curls. So my mom made these curls and but my mom, as the women did in the 40s, they wore this upswept pompadour, smooth, slick back with a little flower or something in the side of their hair. And that's what I wanted. But, you know, you're a little girl. You can't wear your hair like a grown up lady. Well, I wanted that. So she gave me these darn curls. And when she wasn't looking, I grabbed the scissors and I cut them off. And I remember her, one of her operators in her shop setting, Olivia, Olivia, you better come here and see what Andrea done done. <laughs> and what I had done was cut it off. She, she, we started the war after that because she beat me. She smacked <laughs> me about that. And after that, it was always our hair. And when I met Karinga and started natural, my mother took it as a personal attack. I was not allowed to go into her hair salon. I had to knock on the door, wait for the receptionist to come out, tell her I was there, and then go downstairs and wait for my mother to come outside to speak to me. Wow. <laughs> she she was That's not thrilled with your natural. Oh, she, you should have seen her when I went dreadlocks. I've had dreadlocks <laughs> for about 40 years now. That's why my hair is nice and thin at the top. But uh, I didn't know how to have dreadlocks because yeah. nobody was wearing them. But in Australia, I had nowhere to get my hair done so i i did what i thought the song said dread from the roots so i had all my hair taken off i looked like you and i will look like you and i will look like you again soon what you mean this beautiful lush head of hair i have what? yes yes and that was one of the things that i had to deal with in when i talk about it in the book is that why did i think it was a joke that bill wore a hairpiece why did i think that bald, hairpiece, fat, uh, different people, gay, were all different and had to be looked at in a certain way. How? Who taught me that? How did I learn that kind of ridiculous thinking? And I'm still ridding myself of it today. Yeah. I, we have to be responsible for where we put our attention and how we interpret things and challenge. Why do I think that of that person? Yeah. What makes me think that of that person? Where did I get that crap from? Yeah, I I agree. That's a that's a very Star Trek lesson too. You know, it's it's that's very much what it Star is. Trek was about. Yeah. yeah. And Gene Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn had that same had that same feeling. Um, yeah. So yeah, um, that's great. So so Desert Luke gets sold to Paramount. The first time I ever heard from you. You said the only good thing about Paramount buying Desilu was that the eating in the in the canteen, the food yeah. was better. The commissary, <laughs> the food was much better at um, at, at Paramount. Yeah, and there's a little path you could go through. 
uh, and go past the, the, the tanks and down the, where they shot Bonanza and over to their, their dining room. And it was much better food, but that was the only thing that was good about it. It was, we lost our family feeling. Yeah. Because, you know, Herb Solo now had to be a suit. He couldn't, you know, sort of be our friend in a suit. Right. Yeah. Start, you know, the boundaries started being business boundaries. Sure. Um, so. And that, that sort of led to your, to your leaving and, and uh, Gene Kuhn uh, taking you to take the thief and. Um, yeah, he, Gene left and Paramount was different. So yeah. I didn't see, uh, I didn't see any reason to hang around. And yeah. besides, I, you know, I think I had already, you know, slept with a story editor, a film editor, a, <laughs> like a Star Trek cast director. <laughs> uh, I just be repeating myself if I hung what, around. What was left? <laughs> yeah, repeat. I'm not gonna repeat myself. I've done it. I was terrible in those days. <laughs> but you had fun. <laughs> oh yes, I had a lot of fun. Well, this has been a delight. Um, I really appreciate your coming on and talking with me. You're gonna be at Las Vegas, right? You're gonna be at the convention. I'm gonna be in Las Vegas, yeah. and I'm gonna take. 250 copies of my book. Okay, we'll get them while and they're hot, right? All that, that's all that exists, and there won't be any more of that. I'm yeah. doing it just for that that trip. So, um, but the big book will come out soon. Yeah. Do you know where, do you know where, I mean, I've never been to Vegas, but do you know what hall you'll be speaking in? Have you gotten a schedule yet or anything? They oh, haven't. Where? I just know I'll okay. be doing it on the Friday. Okay. All right, great. Um, just so if anybody's watching and is going to be in Vegas, go see Andrea, Andrea Kindred. Um, uh, yes, her book is from, from slavery to Star Trek and it's a delightful read. So, um, please do that. So Andrea, Andy, thank you so much for, for joining thank me you. today. I really appreciate My it. My pleasure.